It is, you know. Why would God do the absurd? Why would God do what he did? Why would God choose to save the most vile person on the planet? That's you, by the way. That's absurd. Why would he do that? If he wasn't pleased with his creation, wouldn't it have just been easier to simply recreate? Wouldn't that have been easier? I mean, couldn't he have just created a a race of superheroes? Those who had spotless records, whose faith was impeccable? Wouldn't that have been easier? Why choose to do the absurd? To reach down, come into our world for our benefit. Why would he do that? Today's the fourth Sunday of Advent. We're talking about love. We have been uh, reflecting along the way on how to, how to think through these four areas of Advent and do it in a way in our own culture and county, which is so unsettled. That's why we labeled this Advent for an unsettled people, an unsettled time. So we've tried to talk that through in different categories. Love today is kind of the climax Um, As Paul said, the greatest of these is love. We're going to talk that through. Normally when we talk about love, we talk about what you should be doing, right? It's easy to go to 1 Corinthians 13 and describe how you should relate to others. But uh, what I want to do today is I want to stop and look at what God did. Because the more we understand what God did, the more we capture a true picture of what love is. Um, We do live in an unsettled time, don't we? I mean, tomorrow is part of the legal process of electing our president. The Electoral College votes tomorrow. And I don't know if you've been reading the uh, headlines, but there's a lot of tension, a lot of stress um, around it. I would like to just pause and just pray for our country during this time. Father, we lift up our country to you as uh, the Electoral College votes tomorrow. God, we just pray that uh, whatever you choose, that you would help us as a country to to figure out how to come back together in unity. Lord, I confess I, it's beyond my vision to see that, but you're not, and it's not beyond your vision because you are a God that we trust and that we know that you know what to do. So help us again as a nation. Thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen. So we're trying to figure out how to engage the culture around us in constructive dialogue and peaceful dialogue in a way that reflects the glory of the Lord, because that's who we believe in, right? How to bring the things that are important to us, uh, hope, peace, joy, love, how to bring that out to a people that don't understand that very well. Um, In order to do that, I think we need to understand how God did it. We have to ask the one who knows how to genuinely love to teach us to genuinely love. It's a little different than what you think, authentic love. He's the one we have to seek. We have to ask him, the one who knows how to change hearts, first of all, to change us, but to teach us through love what it means to be in the lives of people. I ask myself that question regularly in my prayers. Lord, teach me how to love people the way you want me to love them. And I confess to you, it's very hard. 
It's very challenging. It's very difficult. We'll talk about that more. I often pray, Lord, teach me how to, how to enter into discussion and dialogue with people in a way that doesn't hurt them, but in a way that invites them into the conversation. Conversation about the Lord. By the way, that's what theology is. Theology is a, is a compound word. It comes from two Greek words, one referring to God, theos, and the other one referring to speaking, legeo. And uh, when you put them together, it's speaking about God or it's having a conversation about God. That's what it means. And so I'm always looking to find how to invite people into the conversation about the God that we serve in a way that is non-threatening, in a way that's inviting, it's authentic and loving. I'm always praying that he would help me do that. So what is love? Well, let me tell you some things that it's not. Well, you know, when we talked about hope, we said hope is more than wishful thinking. Well, love is like that. It's a little bit more than an emotion. Okay, hope is more than wishful thinking. Peace is more than the absence of conflict. Uh, Shalom is talking about the well-being of the entire person, the soul. You could have the absence of conflict, but still not have peace. Similarly, joy, last week, it's more than happiness and pleasure. Happiness and pleasure doesn't always bring you the deepest joy. People are still unsettled when they have great pleasure. You know that, don't you? We buy things, we acquire things, and yet we're still empty on the inside. Joy is something deeper than that. Well, love is not simply an emotion or an action. It's far deeper than that. It's far more significant and profound. It is an emotion, But it's an emotion that is unrelenting in nature and its commitment to others. Now think about that before you agree. It's unrelenting in its nature and its commitment to others. It doesn't give up. Anybody you hate? That's where you find love. That's where you find if you genuinely know how to love. Oh, there's some people it's easy to love. My wife is easy to love most of the time. Like your wife, right? My friends are easy to love most of the time. My kids are easy to love most of the time. You're easy to love most of the time. That's not where you see love the clearest. Love is unrelenting and it's commitment to every person. Think about the person that you hate and you're beginning to capture a sense of how authentic your own love is. It's an intense feeling. There's no question about that. But it results in a deep and committed affection for another person. That's what it does. At its very core, it's moving outside of ourselves into the life of someone else, no matter how evil they are. Why would God do the absurd? Why would He decide... To save me. I know me the best. I know you a little. I know me a lot. Why would he decide to do whatever it took to get my attention? That's absurd. That's what that is. It's absurd. So we're going to take a moment and we're going to look at God's love for us because God is the primary example. One of the questions I love to ask, I've asked it many, many times over the years. I ask it in the classroom with students. It doesn't matter what level of students they are, bachelor, master's, doctorate. They all, they all kind of wrestle with it. I love asking it in the church context with my friends. Why did God save you? Why? The answers often come back along the lines of behavior, what I'm supposed to do. 
Why did God save you? So that I'll glorify him forever. So I'll worship him alone. Well, those are all true statements, but they don't explain the motivation. They don't explain why God did it. You see, God didn't need your glory. He's perfectly glorious without you. (laughs) He's perfectly beautiful. He's perfectly happy. All those things are true. He didn't need you at all. And when we begin to define the answer to that question in terms of behaviors, it, it begins to feel a little uncomfortable to me and many others that I know. It's like this. So why did you decide to have children? So they would worship me. It didn't happen, but. <laughs> why did you decide to have children? So they bring me glory. That feels uncomfortable to us, right? God didn't need any of that. That is a core set of doctrines in our faith. That goes back to the earliest church. Every church council affirmed that at some level. God did not need us. So what's his motivation? I only know of one place in scripture that discusses it. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. Only one place where he gives us the purpose of why he did it. The why. Why do the absurd? You heard in the story that, uh, and I wanted you to hear the whole story, that uh, the what is easy. We can write books about the what all day long. But to try to figure out the why, it goes against the grain. Why would God do what he did for the most vile planet, person on the planet? The most evil person. Why would he do that? In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul is talking in this wonderful book about the, the grand problem of estrangement between the Jews and Gentiles. They hated each other. And it's really a fantastic book to look at if you are in disagreement and you're, dis, and you're, and you're divided with other people of how to, to bring about unity. It's a fantastic book. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Because of his great love for us, there you go, (laughs) right off the bat. It's because of his great love for us, not because of what he gets from us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ Even when we are dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's the process of regeneration and coming to know the Lord. That's what that is. That's the process of waking up before the Lord. Why did he do that? Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages, uh, don't think too much about the future, the ages that are descending on us, God's Emmanuel coming into our world, in order that during this time he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Did you get it? He did it in order that we might bow down and worship him. No, that's all going to happen. But that's not the reason. That's not the reason. He did it because he wants to bless us. That's the reason. He wants us to to bless us. He raised us up with him. He regenerated us so that, in order that, in the coming ages, in this what's happening right now, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The very next verse is the first example of what that blessing looks like. For it's grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. The very first thing he did was give you a gift to trust him. So why did he reach down and save you? Because he loves you and wants to bless you. It's the only place I know in Scripture that discusses it. That's why. Oh, yeah, we will worship him and we'll enjoy it. And he gets a lot of joy out of that. Absolutely. Just like you do when your children honor you. He gets all that. But that's not the motivation. The motivation was not based on what he got from you, but what he could give back to you or give to you in the way of love. Is that powerful? Is that absurd? That's the message of the gospel. This unrelenting love that we see him moving about constantly in our world, breaking into our world in lots of places, it occurs all throughout the Bible. We're going to look at uh, two or three passages in Deuteronomy. I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Don't try to follow me. I'm going to go pretty quick. Deuteronomy is a book where they're standing on this side of the river about to enter the promised land. They just finished the wandering for 40 years. And Moses is reminding them, of the great things. This is where he gives the law a second time to remind them of God. He's reminding them constantly of God's love. And he says several things in this book. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, he says, You were shown these things, what happened to Egypt. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. That's the reason he brought you out of Egypt, because he loved your ancestors and those after him. That's you. He did all this because of his love. He stepped down into their world when they were being abused and hurt. And he brought them out. Or if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we have another passage there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were the smallest nation. And I chose you, the smallest nation. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I chose you because you were the smallest people, because I wanted you to understand my love for you. If you're a big, powerful nation, like Egypt, oh, we did it by our own strength. But you weren't. I chose you because you were the smallest. Why did he choose Israel? Because they were special? Not really. That's not the real reason. The reason he chose them was because he had a plan for them. He had a purpose. They were to bring his love out to a broken world. Yes, including Egypt. They were. That was his promise to Abraham. That's the heart of the gospel, that God loves all the peoples of the world, every single person. It's not a big difference between you and the most evil person on the planet. And yet God loves every person. Or Deuteronomy, um, well, let's just move on. In, in the Gospel of John, we see an incredible picture of God's love, but now it's expressed through his son. So we're going to jump all the way to the New Testament. You know the famous verse in John 3.16, which she alluded to, for God so what? Say it again. God so what? Loved. What did he love? The world. It's not you. You're part of it. God so loved the world. It makes sense. He made this whole creation. He made it all. 
and he loves all of it. He, he loved the world so much that he sent who? His only son. His only son, Jesus. It's an amazing story. He loves the entire world. Then in John 13, which she read, uh, after he washes the disciples' feet as an example of what it means to be a Christian, to, to move into the lives of people and serve others, then he gives that famous verse, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't say by your doctrinal statement, everyone will know. He doesn't say by the way you practice communion, by the way you do worship, whether you do hymns or praise songs or whatever. He didn't say that. He didn't say by the, by the way you decorate your church. We do all those things. He didn't say by the way you host the tree lighting for Dylan, we do that. No, he says by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He just raised to the highest level Love. Love is the description of what we are to be about. That's why Paul can say love covers a multitude of sins. Then in John chapter 15, he talks about how sacrificial love is. This is the great passage on um, abiding in him. And in, uh, he is the vine, we are the uh, branches. And in here he has this great verse, verse 9. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down their life for their friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. This is my command, verse 17, love each other. This is the core of what Christianity should be known for. So what is our county? What do they know us for when they look at us? When they look at DCC, do they think they are people that love? Right there. Do they think that? When they look at our church? If not, we have a lot of work to do because that is the most important part of it. Oh, it's important to get our doctrine straight. I'm trained in that. I love that. I love good debates. It's important to do that, but it's more important that we demonstrate authentic love to a world around us that is really hurting because that's what they will understand. That's what they will grasp. It amazes me that... um, I was with the teenagers last night, um, and we were talking, and I made a comment that kind of surprised them that, that I get criticized. I get criticized regularly. That's just part of being a pastor. You see this little thing right here? This little thing means that it goes all around the world. My sermons are on the website. Uh, several countries around the world, I get feedback from people there listening to what I have to say. I can tell you about the guy in another state who uh, has probably sent me 100 emails criticizing me. Criticizing the words that I use, the way I say it, my theology. In his mind, I'm a heretic. I finally wrote him an email and said, why do you listen to me? I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> I, think he has, I think he wants to fight somebody. Okay, I'm up for a good fight. <laughs> I get criticized. And I was surprised them. 
It surprised them. I said last week that uh, we talked as elders, and uh, yes, I, I get criticized from the other churches as well. I hear it. I know that. And that's okay with me. Just like the Supreme Court, that's not my area of responsibility. It's above my, pay, above my pay grade. I'll let the Lord handle the Supreme Court, and the presidency, and the administration, the cabinet, the Congress. I let the Lord handle the other churches. Because the people out here that don't know Christ, they don't know what the other churches are saying. Our commitment is to never criticize another church. That's what our commitment is. And to love these people. What I care about are these people out here that don't know Jesus. That's what's important to me. And so we get, I do get criticized. But what surprises me is when it comes from you. That's what surprises me. Some of you, uh, and I'm not talking about technical criticism. Hey, you, your grammar wasn't complete or whatever. I'm talking about the way I say things or explain things. Sometimes, sometimes when you criticize me, I marvel at the fact that uh, the criticism comes with an attitude that is in itself sinful. It's not simply disagreement. It's a challenge. Sometimes it has hostility in it. Sometimes it has a little bit of hatred. Sometimes it has fear. That surprises me when it comes from you. I can take it from Argentina or Ohio. I mean, that's what you get when you go get higher education. You get used to being criticized. But it, it, makes me, it just makes me puzzled when some of you step up and, and don't express Christian love in the way you express your criticism. Why is that? I'll let you answer that. I don't know. Because we should always strive to demonstrate that commitment to the other person no matter how vile they are. You think of the most evil person you know and Christ cared about them. He loved them enough to give up his life. That means something to me that he would do that. When you get to Matthew 22, love becomes a unifying theme that explains the entire scriptures. It's a famous verse. You already know. You don't even have to turn there. When he was tested, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he goes, oh yeah, and by the way, there's another commandment just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that important? John goes on to tell us in 1 John that if you say you love God but you hate your neighbor, you're a liar. You hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. So you can test the authenticity of your love by the most hateful person you know. That's how you can test how authentic your love really is and how genuine it is, is by the most evil person you know. Do you still love them? Do you pray for them? That's what we're told to do. Do you do good to them? He tells us to do that. Do you turn the other cheek, all those passages? So you can measure your own, uh, your own uh, authenticity level. But then right after that, he didn't stop there. He says, based on these two verses, all of the law and the prophets, we're talking about basically the entire scripture, depends. The scriptures do not work if you don't love God and love each other. They simply don't work. That just makes you a hypocrite. That's all it makes you. It makes you fake. Inauthentic. That's what it makes you. The scriptures, these really don't work without love. That is the undergirding principle behind it. 
Therefore, love becomes the core of this gospel, this good news from which everything flows. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. It becomes the core. So what are you afraid of? What keeps you from loving? You see, when you trace love through the Bible, it, be, it reveals a trajectory that shows the true storyline, the narrative of what all of this in this world is about. That's what we call the good news, the gospel, that God loves this entire world so much, he'll do whatever it takes to get your attention, to help you. Turn to him. That's what it reveals. And the inescapable conclusion from all the Gospels and all the later writings of the New Testament is that God's love is most clearly seen in his becoming human. That's what Advent is all about. He cared enough about us to become like us, to experience what we experience. That's Advent, the appearing of Jesus. That's what that means. So... What are you afraid of? What prevents you from loving people? What is it? By the way, the opposite of genuine love is self-love, which is not really love. You have a choice. You can love yourself or you can love others. That's your choice. What keeps you from doing that? Who's the most hateful person you know? How authentic is your love? Is it real? This is what the gospel is all about. And therefore, that's what Advent is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. He remembered his promise and he came to spend it with us. Because he loves us and wants to bless us. That's the core message to me of the scriptures of which everything flows. Father, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for doing the absurd, saving me. Lord, um, I still marvel at it 39 years later that you would indeed, that you would uh, reach down and find me in a very dark place, a place where I couldn't even get to you, I couldn't find you, I couldn't make sense of you. Lord, caught in drugs and immorality, and, and yet you wove your way through that darkness and you found me. You did the absurd. And then it's even more absurd to find out that you did it simply because you loved me and wanted to bless me. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to continue to cultivate that heart, that pure gold heart of wanting to be a blessing to our county and to love the people that we live with day in and day out, and we care about them. Help us, Lord, to cultivate that level of absurdness in our love for them. In your son's name we pray, amen.